Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Let the celebration begin. Come to Cabela's 4th of July sale and gear up for Independence Day. Get 50% off Cabela's American Flag Chairs 2-Pack and 50% off a Caravan 10-foot by 10-foot shelter. Plus, get 40% off an Abu Garcia Cardinal Sapphire Spinning Combo and 10% off all in-stock canoes and kayaks. Don't miss Cabela's 4th of July sale, in-store and online at cabelas.com. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Daniel, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Kevin Pelton of ESPN Insider, one of my favorites to read and talk to. This was fun to do because it's such an exciting week of playoff basketball that is coming up from the start of the Western Conference semifinals to the Game 7s in the East. And then, of course, on Monday, Cavs-Hawks will start the semifinals in the East. Our conversation runs about an hour. Really did enjoy it. One thing I will note and apologize for is that the audio quality on this isn't great. Kevin was driving actually from covering the game last night, Blazers Clippers in Portland to Seattle. So there's some ambient noise, but the content is good enough and I did everything I could to mitigate it, but I think you will still enjoy the conversation and find it worthwhile. Thanks so much for coming on. Well, always a pleasure to uh, join you. I was actually just listening to Dump Talk before we started recording. Yeah, and so the timing on this is pretty fun because while we can't really do a formal second round preview because of the timing of everything, what we're looking at this weekend is game one in both Western Conference semifinals and then two big game sevens out east. Right, a a lot at stake this weekend in two different rounds. So we'll start with what I think is probably the top of the list for both of us, which is Spurs-Thunder a very fascinating series and one that is impactful in, in a couple of different ways. And I guess the, the place to, uh, uh, in that series to start is, what do you think is the single most important thing about that series? Well, we did a five-on-five on this for Insider, so I, I already answered this earlier today. I determined that, in my opinion, it's Oklahoma City's ability to execute down the stretch. I mean, if you look at, obviously, the issue for the Thunder all season long has been their ability to win close games which I tend to feel is probably much more random than most people tend to feel. But in a series like this, where I think that most of the games are going to be close, the two games that the teams played when they were at full strength were both decided by single digits, you're going to have a lot of those situations. And whether the Thunder actually, you know, I'm going to keep down the stretch or, you know, and, and prove that what happened in the regular season was mostly random or whether they struggle in those situations, it's probably going to determine the outcome of the series. Yeah, and that also, it, it's one of the 
fascinating dynamics that happened during the season was early on, the Spurs were actually struggling in crunch time. They weren't doing that well, and they ended the season third in crunch, as defined by the NBA, is five points or less in the last five minutes. They ended up third in the league in in that by outscoring opponents by 15.4 during that stretch, and OKC was towards the bottom, and they were actually outscored by 8.2 points per 100, which was worse than the Magic, who I regularly lampoon for their crunch time ineffectiveness. Right, and I, you know, they, they stand out in that section of the NBA. I mean, even though that there's more randomness in the last five minutes because the sample sizes are smaller and then there's other situations, like is there an intentional foul in there where you're killing your net rating because of the fact that you're trying to preserve some small chance of winning the game, that's, those sort of issues crop up. But generally speaking, the best teams in the league are the best in punch time. And Oklahoma City is the notable exception to that. And it's been kind of disheartening to see that that has continued from from Scott Brooks to Billy Donovan because some people, including myself, had kind of theorized that Brooks had maybe not had f- facilitated that, but had at least enabled it by being okay with them going to this ISO-heavy lack of movement basketball in late-game situations. And we haven't really seen that change at all this year. Right. Yeah, I mean, I wonder to to what extent it's just a product of your greatest strength is also your greatest weakness. So when you have two scores as good as Durant and Westbrook, you're not forced to be creative as someone who doesn't have that kind of individual shot creation might not forget what they're like game offense. The analogy that I would make is to the Warriors with Mark Jackson and Steve Kerr was that some people are okay with with kind of the idea of good enough that you know that you can they can be successful they can get points with those two guys but you can do better with a with a more cogent system of course building that system is incredibly difficult and not everybody can do it and yeah you certainly don't want to start uh, during round two of the NBA playoffs but I, I think part of it is maybe that's one of the places where the adjustment from the college game to the NBA game is bigger than we give it credit for being given that. You know, a 30-second, 35-second shot clock with Donovan was there. Obviously, it was down to 30 this year after after he came to the NBA. You've got time to run lots of actions, do various different things in the course of an offensive possession. In the NBA, a little more compressed. That's part of the reason we see more isolation ball. And maybe, you know, you didn't have necessarily those quick hitting things to get a, a number of people involved ready to go right away in the NBA. One of the other really important things that I've seen in this series is that Russell Westbrook is a very talented driver, but his finishing is a little bit shaky. And with the expectation that both of these teams could stay big for a while, I think in some ways that could really hurt him because the Spurs have Tim Duncan, who's one of the best rim protectors in the league. Definitely, yeah. I mean, he's, he's better. He's kind of more of a volume shooter at the rim. They're still efficient shots overall because of the fact that they're just so good by their nature. But it's not that he's great because of the fact that he shoots a high percentage of the rim, like Kyrie Irving. It's because of the fact that he just gets so many of those shots that a lot of them are going to go in by definition. And, I, I mean, I guess that, that poses one of the questions. is like, in crunch time, is Tim Duncan going to be able to stay on or are the Spurs going to be able to, or the Thunder rather, going to be able to find ways to take advantage of pulling him out on the perimeter, doing that sort of thing, and, and causing problems and trying to play him off? Well, their challenge is that 
they don't have enough perimeter talents to really go small in those crunch time lines. They can try it, you know, if it's particularly if it's an offense defense situation, then that opens it up a little bit. You know, you could have a guy like Anthony Morrow maybe out there who you probably wouldn't want to have out there if you're going, you know, if you're exchanging possessions without a timeout. But if they're going to have Steven Adams in there, then Tim Duncan doesn't have to, you're not sitting there worried if that you can leave Steven Adams. Oh no, if he's open for a 20 footer, that's going to be devastating. So Duncan can hang out closer to the rim. Right, it pretty much requires the pocket to be at center, which gets back to that issue about the lack of wings. And it feels like a conversation that we've been happy about the Thunder dating back to last year in Summerlin. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a big problem for them. And it's something that also came to, to a degree in, into effect in the Clippers series, which just resolved, was just not having enough guys that can do specific things on the perimeter. It forces you into some of these complicated matchups as opposed to somebody like the Blazers, who they had enough people that they could be a little bit more flexible. Right, which, you know, it's probably getting ahead of things, but it's interesting for them in the Golden State series is that Portland, almost by accident in some ways, ended up with four two-way, at least competent, if not plus-two-way win players than almost anyone in the league outside of Golden State. Yeah, and you, when you consider that Oklahoma City had been trying for that as one of their core flaws for the last three years, basically ever since they traded James Harden, it's amazing that Portland basically discovered like discovered plutonium, maybe not by accident, but discovered it that way, and the Clippers and the Thunder have been going at it for years and couldn't do it nearly as well. Well, how could they find uh, an asset that is valuable in that top 55 draft pick that uh, Portland gave to Orlando for Mohawks? And when you consider that the Thunder had a trade exception that they could have used and, and gotten him for that price, like it, it obviously Harkless wouldn't be perfect for what they're looking for, but he's just another dude that can play basketball. Right. You know, if you expected that he could make the open three at times, which he didn't probably early in the series against the Clippers, but uh, by by the end of it, he was making enough of those to stay on the court. I I, I keep on feeling like. Kawhi is going to do a really good job on Durant. That doesn't mean he's going to shut him down like, oh, Durant's going to score 10 points or anything like that. But I think he's specially suited to, to just handle that. And I also think they need to do a, a, as close a job as they can of pairing of Popovich, of pairing their minutes, because the Spurs have other good defenders, but they don't really have another guy that can handle Durant the way that Kawhi should be able to. The ESPN Stats and Info had a really interesting post about this the other day, that Kawhi basically has not only held Durant to the lowest shooting percentage of anyone who defended him on a regular basis over the last couple of years, but also has, you know, it's a good process. It's not just randomness, which you would expect with Kawhi, but has forced him into the most difficult shot of, you know, that group of players who has defended on him on a regular basis. So definitely some statistical backing for that. But the other, the other interesting thing they found is that, you know, Danny Green has generally done a pretty good job on Durant and not been as effective on Westbrook. I mean, I... When I view that as the matchups in my mind, I think those two are kind of connected because you're going to have one of those two guys when they're on the court together on Westbrook and one of them on Durant. And uh, in my head, Green makes more sense on Westbrook because I think he's better against guys he has a size advantage on. But Westbrook has had a lot more success against him than, than Kawhi, which raises the question of, you know, do you, do you look for the best possible matchup on the toughest player? Or do you look to maximize both of those matchups? Well, yeah, and that's something that, uh, as somebody who covers the Warriors, that I've seen teams grapple with for years with Steph and Clay is who do you put the, who do you put the better guy on? My thought on Danny Green is that Westbrook is smaller than him, but he's so strong 
that it could be that while his functional size is less, that he he's physical in a way that most other point guards are not. So that traditional Danny Green advantage there is a little bit less effectual. Yeah, I think that's a, an excellent point. But then you think that'd be even more of an issue against Durant, gargantuan, six eleven athlete than he is. But you know, if Green can hold his own there, I mean, if I if I'm off, I think you know I want to experiment with most of those matchups throughout the early games of the series, and maybe not settle on a conclusion until midway through. What's so devastating in a way for the Thunder in terms of this series, I think it's just uh, just so so unfortunate for them, is that they will always have a place for Tony Parker to be because they don't have that third guy. Even if it, they go more offensively capable, whether you consider that Dion Waiters or you consider that Morrow, I don't think you have any qualms about putting Tony Parker on that person. No, very true. Yeah, I mean, that's, the Spurs defensive personnel probably matches up almost perfectly with what you'd want in Oklahoma City in terms of, you know, two quality wing defenders to handle Westbrook and, and uh, Durant, and then, like you said, someone who can be hit against whoever the third guy is. And, then, uh, and that ties in even when you move close to the perimeter but slightly away from that with Serge Ibaka and, and LaMarcus. I mean, it's a little bit different, and LaMarcus is a tough cover, but I think that Serge will do a good job. Yeah, I mean, uh, going back to... You know, all you're say in Portland, I feel like Ivanka has generally done a pretty good job against him and, you know, matches up athletically about as well as you want. And I think that they're, the Spurs, and with their starting lineup, you know, they're not going to have to deal with an OKC team that moves the ball a lot. So that can be a good thing or a bad thing, but a team that stays a little bit more stagnant is more of a problem defensively if you can't handle those matchups, which is actually, I think, part of the reason why the Warriors have had some struggles with the Thunder in, in recent years, is that, you know, that you're, you're forcing this isolation, which is something that the Warriors kind of want to do anyway, but they don't have the personnel that the Spurs have. But at the Spurs, you're just playing into their hands when you have Kawhi, Danny Green, and Serge Ibaka. Yeah, but I still do think there's a scenario where, you know, Durant and Westbrook are just so good individually that... They, you know, can beat those guys. Good, good offense beats good defense, and that's, you know, probably what's required of them to win this series. I mean, it's, you know, the sort of what we saw in 2012. Although James Harden was also a big factor in that. You remember Scott Brooks probably his finest moment in the 2012 Conference Finals, getting really creative. All three of those guys screen for each other late in the game and, and take advantage of the first having to work with all three of them. But then even, you know in games three and four of the 2014 series, where for a while there it looked like, okay, you know, Thunder got Serge Ibaka back, and this series is totally different than it was in San Antonio when it won the first two games. That kind of ties in with one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about with this series, which is that I feel like San Antonio's offense with the starting five could struggle with Oklahoma City just because they don't move the ball a ton, and while their talent is, of course, very good, I think that that, that that could be an issue, maybe not in crunch time situations, but just throughout the game, and that could give Oklahoma City some opportunities in transition. Right. I mean, you know, you look at it, the San Antonio, the San Antonio starting five has not been quite as good as, I'd have to look this up to check it, but I don't think they've been as good as the Oklahoma City starting five even necessarily. That really where San Antonio makes up ground on everyone else in the league is first and foremost their second unit in the game which, you know, have uh, a very different style to them, I would say. It's not as, you know, they've still got David West taking a lot of long twos, but not maybe as uh, long two dependent as the starting lineup often can become, I think, with 
you know, two traditional big men, you know, quiet, a lot of isolation will turn into two, Tony Parker pull-ups, and, and the green is really the only source of three-point shooting, and he's obviously been inconsistent almost as long. Yeah, and they also, the Spurs second unit has a couple of capable pick-and-roll ball handlers, and, of course, David West can do that well. So that's, it's not very suitable for Ennis Canner, who is a very shaky pick-and-roll defender. I mean, I'm kind of curious to see the Spurs roll out Bobot at, at some point with the second unit, because I feel like him versus Ennis Canter, it's, uh facilitates both teams' offense, kind of like we've seen with Al Jefferson at times in the, uh, the Charlotte-Miami series and things like that, where... You know, both of those bat- those matchups play into each other where both of those guys are so much better offensively than they are defensively, particularly in the pick and roll that uh, it, it creates great offense on both sides. Yeah, I, 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 if I were Pop, I would lean more towards West just because I think you can do better to stop. I think that leads to a better net advantage. But sure, for, for moments you can use Boban. He's also a fascinating player. But yeah, I, I think that we focus a lot because it's so much more interesting on OKC's offense versus the Spurs' defense, but the counter might actually be more impactful in terms of settling the series. Well, to go back to the clutch question that we talked about earlier to start this, you know, even though Oklahoma City's offense has not been as good as it probably should be in those late-game situations, a lot of the reason they've struggled in clutch situations is because the fact that their defense has been, I mean, it's not bottom five close to it, on a per-possession basis during the regular season. And that's a little bit more difficult, I think, even for me to conceptualize that them struggling offensively with the talent they have. Yeah, because well, with with their personnel, that doesn't that makes even less sense. Right, because it seems like when Oklahoma City struggles defensively, it's mostly because they're not completely locked in. And uh, I, I can think of Russell Westbrook as a prime culprit for that. And we did see it in a clutch situation in Game 2 against Dallas, which has been lost in. His poor defense there was a big factor in that. But in general, you think, you know, late-game situations should be with Westbrook is most locked defensively and actually taking advantage of that lot of the bad end. Yeah, uh, one thing I've been thinking about, assuming maybe it's only even for offense-defense circumstances, but I would seriously consider putting Andre Roberson on Parker for stretches just to see what he can do. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I feel like we saw that more from Oklahoma City late in the regular season. Maybe I just noticed it more as far as his defending point guard. But again, you get that, as we read, like we were talking about earlier, you get that giant wingspan that just kind of swallows things up and makes it difficult for a smaller player to have any court vision. So that, I, I think, could be a really ideal thing for them. And as bad as he is offensively, I still wouldn't be opposed to keeping him engaged down the stretch, especially if you go off and defense. Because I think him not being out there is probably a small factor in why their defense hasn't been that good in those situations. More abstract question, but do you? I think that teams should experiment more with guys like him on ones because you get that length advantage, and there are a group of guys that have the quickness to do it. Like KCP has done a magnificent job on point guards. Yeah, to me, those guys are generally the best defenders on point guard. And what makes a point guard defender elite is oftentimes that they can, you know, Ricky Rubio's example of this because he's also got size with a big wingspan, that they can provide that same kind of wing on point guard type defense while also being, you know, the primary ball handler at the other end of the court. Yeah, and that's true. That's a big difference between Rubio and, let's say, Avery Bradley, who's sliding over, and then you get the benefit of not having... You don't even have to put the other guy in the off situation, but 
as two guards have moved into a lot of different kind of physical abilities, I think there are more places, There maybe not more places, but there are still places that you can hide a one if you need to do that, but you do have the disadvantage, as you said, of them not being the guy who runs your offense. And the other interesting thing that happens is uh, if you end up seeing a lot of cross-matching, who benefits more in transition? You think that San Antonio would have the edge there, or just a point finding somebody matching up that Oklahoma City is going to be in those kind of scramble situations. And that's also a part of the question with Danny Green, because if Westbrook's going to be more of a driver, then that that kind of changes things a little bit. But I, I think, actually, that's true. That's on the other end of the floor. Like, I think Danny Green in a cross match is going to be an absolutely fascinating one for Westbrook, because he's one of the best transition defenders in the league. <laughs> yes, I make, maybe the best in that uh, three-on-one situation. It's hard to think of anyone else who does what he can do. So if you're, if you're Billy Donovan... How much do you think Ennis Canner is playing in the series? Is he going to do kind of his standard minutes, or do you kind of bounce, maybe shift down a little bit less? Ooh, I mean, especially coming out of the Dallas series, it's hard to, I think, come into this with a gameplay that he's going to play a lot less, but I think you have to be open to the possibility that, you know, San Antonio is really taking advantage of him in pick and roll, that, you know, no matter how amazingly productive he might be at the other end of the court, and you would think that. You know, they'll have a size and strength advantage against the San Antonio second unit. They don't really have a traditional center in that group. It's Diao and, and West, you know, one of those guys trying to box him out. Uh, so I think I, you have to be open to the possibility that this is not a series for him and, you know, what the alternative, figure out what the alternative is going to be for that, whether it's, you know, extended minutes for Adams and playing Nick Hall into five, things like that. And one thing that we shouldn't discount is that while San Antonio's second unit will do a really nice job on, on Thunder just because they have so much talent, I'm not sure how much of second unit Thunder we're going to see because I think Durant and Westbrook are going to play as close to the full game as they can the whole way through. Right, and that's, I think, one of those things that happened in those series is, you, know, you remember those, those past Oklahoma City playoff runs where Durant is able to go up to 40, 42 minutes a night and especially now that they are staggering Durant and Westbrook, you're only talking about very short stretches where even, even you're just playing with one of those guys and never a situation where you're playing without both of them. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely true. And it will also be fascinating if Danny Green, you know, let's say let's say you end up with Danny Green and, and Kawhi on the Durant-Westbrook combination, whether Pop is going to ever fiddle with Manu Ginobili instead of Tony Parker in the primary ball handler role, because really what you're looking for defensively is probably closer to what Manu brings anyway. Especially if he's matching up with Deion Waiters to finish games, where you know, he's the one guy who probably has one Thunder player alongside Durant Westbrook who has the physical tools, if not necessarily the skills, to make Parker pay for trying to hide him in that, in that matchup. So, yeah, that'd be intriguing. I, the other question to me is, is there a situation where if Danny Green struggles with his shooting, if he did much of the regular season, where possibly that becomes a, such a big issue that you can't have him on the floor defensively? And if that's the case, then what do you do trying to defend either Westbrook or Durant, whichever one flies on him? Yeah, and especially considering Jonathan Simmons has not solidified a spot in the rotation like I expected him to considering how he played early in the season. No, I mean, it's hard to see if Pop trusting Simmons in this series. He got, you know, a few minutes against the Grizzlies, but pretty much everyone got minutes against the Grizzlies. Yeah, it doesn't seem like he's really an option. It would have to be a case of, of trusting, you know, maybe 
tiny wheel to defend Westbrook and I, I don't like that the idea of that so maybe maybe scratch the notion altogether yeah a- anything else on this series before we do some predictions nothing else specifically justified so I said last night and I'm standing by it that my feeling is Spurs and six it's always weird to predict a team to win a series this close on the opposing team's home four but I just feel like the Spurs aren't going to have any issue with that. And I could see the, the first five games going in a couple of different iterations, but I think San Antonio has some advantages that will be really hard to counter. And so my, my leaning is Spurs and six, but I could see a lot of different scenarios in the series. Well, obviously that's possible. This is the ugly side 2014. I, I still am going to play the, uh, the odds here. Spurs, but... Yeah, I, I mean, that's certainly fair. And so Nate and I discussed last night that he thinks it would be really hard for OKC to win a game seven in San Antonio, given how well they played at home. I think it's it's unlikely, but certainly possible. Well, we haven't seen a lot of games win any game in San Antonio so far this year, which is probably a reason to doubt it. And when you add in the increased home court advantage in game seven, but I think if any team is not going to be intimidated by that situation, it is probably Oklahoma City. And we have seen them win an absolutely enormous road game in San Antonio. It wasn't game seven, but that game five in 2012 ultimately was the swing game of that series, giving them the opportunity to close out at home as opposed to in that game having to go back and, and potentially win game seven in San yeah, an OKC's a team that has players with high enough ceilings that I, I have this feeling with them, part of the reason I've liked them for so long, is that when they're at their best, they're just really hard to stop. And those are the types of teams that I I either believe in those type of teams or teams that, for whatever reason, are facing somebody who's substantially weaker than them in a Game 7 because it's a little bit more impervious to the effects that you see, whether it be home court or the refs or whatever it can be. Because, because if you can reach that level, if they get to their supernova, the Spurs, the Spurs, as great as they are defensively, will struggle. Yeah, I would agree with that. You can't, you can't ever rule the thunder out anywhere, anytime, anywhere. Yeah, which, which is what part of what makes this series so exciting is that they can just, they can just get to that level. But we'll move on to what we just found out last night. You were there at the game that settled it. Warriors, Blazers. There are a lot of different directions to go, but I think the most interesting one, and you wrote a great piece on this, is how the series will look before Stephen Curry comes back, if he does. Right, and at that point, obviously, it was before we knew that this was going to be the series. It's crazy how quickly things developed, because I originally wrote this, you know, wrote about it Sunday afternoon, when we knew that Curry had, had a, a sprained knee, figured he probably had a sprained MCL, but didn't know how long he was going to be out. And then at that point, you know, the, I kind of was giving, honestly, like, token, okay, well, here's how they would match up with the Blazers, hypothetically. But realistically, like we all knew at that point, it was probably going to be Clippers uh, who had the 2-1 lead in the series. And then obviously that changes in a matter of minutes for Chris Paul and Griffin leading that series. So, you know, I had some time, even though we didn't know for sure until last night, to kind of consider what a Warriors-Blazers series would look like. And to me, I'm curious what you think about this. I think this is a series where we are going to see a ton of Draymond Green in the center. I agree with you completely. I think it's it's a really fascinating matchup for him on both ends of the four, just who they choose to put him on, whether how they're handling it with switches and everything like that. But yeah, I think it's going to be really it's going to be really big for him, and it's going to be early on. It'll be a test to, on Lillard and McCollum to see how they handle size because whatever alignments they go with defensively, those guys are going to have somebody bigger than them on. Exactly. I mean, that's the one thing that's the silver lining for Steph Curry injury is. Warriors get who were already very good defensively get slightly better with Sean Livingston and point guard with the size that he 
rings there. And that's one of the things I really like about that small lineup for the Warriors series is that if it's, you know, Livingston, it's Livingston, Thompson, Iguodala, Barnes, and Green, you've got four, five guys who are all between six foot six and six foot eight. I think Draymond Green is tied for the shortest of that group. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. So you can switch anything. Portland's going to run pick and rolls. You know, obviously that's the base of their offense. We saw the Clippers have some success early in the series trapping uh, the pick and roll before eventually Portland was able to find enough other offense guys that work with all of it and will learn to beat that strategy, which we didn't see as much of after the injury. But in this series, yeah, I think it's just going to be a lot of switching and hoping to force Portland in isolation in situations where Lillard and McCullough are not going to have major athleticism advantages to beat somebody one-on-one. Well, and the big concern for Portland is not only that the Warriors can switch it, but they have smart enough guys that they can trap and leave the right guys open, and they have rim protection more regularly on the court. Of course, DeAndre had a huge effect when he was out there on Lillard and McCollum at the basket, but depending on how the Warriors want to do it, whether it be Draymond's underrated rim protection at center or when they have Bogan and Mazzilli out there, like they're going to have people, other than when Spates plays, they're going to have people out there that will be able to affect shots and that are smart enough to be in the right places at the right times. And that was something I noticed last night was just that whenever a possession was when the Blazers were working hard and getting any sort of ball or player movement, there was going to be a seam somewhere, and usually it led to C.J. McCollum being wide open. Right. I, I probably both think he's the same two plays that led to McCollum three-pointers in the fourth quarter, which were both crucial baskets. Yeah, I mean, the Clippers just, A, don't have that kind of discipline, and then, B, even some of the guys who didn't do, like J.J. Redick was so badly hobbled that he couldn't cover a lot of ground defensively when McCollum started you know, moving around the court rapidly. That's not going to be an issue for the Warriors. No, not at all. And the Warriors' offense will will be struggling, you know, just because they don't have they don't have the right kind of guys. So you'll have those times where they're generating kind of like the Blazers at moments in games one and two of this of their previous series, which is that you're generating open looks for guys that don't make them all the time. And you know that's why there will be some kind of some higher variance in the early games in this series, just because of that. Because you know if there's a game when Harrison Barnes is getting gets four open threes and none of them go in, it's going to be a lot harder for the Warriors to score. But I think Portland's half-court offense is going to struggle a lot, and the Warriors will be focused enough on stopping them in transition that I I think that it it will be a struggle for Portland the whole way through. A struggle does not mean impossible. Far, far, far from it, but it will be hard for them. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think that, you know, like I said, the Warriors get even better defensively without Curry. You know, they have, I think, the ceiling of being as good as anyone defensively in the league when they're really locked in and down in support. So, you know, Portland's going to need to make shots, you know, particularly have Lillard and Collin make difficult shots that didn't go down early in the series against the Clippers and went down towards the end. And we talked about the idea of how Portland doesn't have many guys who generate offense for them. You know, really, it's only two, and Plumlee can, Plumlee can capitalize when he basically gets an opening. But the same issue is true on the other end, which is that Portland has at least one, usually two, shaky defenders on the floor at any given time. They have to because the fact that those guys are so important for them offensively. And Golden said, I guess that's one of the nice things about having such a democratic offense is that, uh, 
you know, you're going to be able to attack those, those mismatches and not have to, you know, feel like you necessarily have to, you know, you're going to ride Clay Thompson, but you can also get reliable buckets. It's a low-scoring game, like Sean Livingston's ability to post up either Lillard or McCollum any time you've matched up against them. You know, those kind of shots will probably become positive shots because of the fact that it's a, it's a relatively low-scoring game. Even though it's not their greatest offensive option, I still think we're going to see a lot of clay post-ups as well, just because he's comfortable doing it. And I think they're going to. I think it's very likely that the Blazers will be less cognizant of kind of that advantage as opposed to with Livingston, where it's just so obvious because that's such a large part of his offense. Yeah, I would agree with that. And now the one thing is, it might be easier to bring help against Thompson in the post because of the fact that if he's down there, you've lost your best spot-up shooter around him. Yeah, which is another part of the reason why I think Brandon Rush in the early games could be very important because while he's not the greatest defender, he's also not terrible defensively, he is their best, their second best, I guess, because Clay obviously is best, just open shot hitter. And that's incredibly valuable in this series. Yeah, it is. It's a low-scoring series, especially just... It's incredible that the Warriors, by the way, were able to make as many threes as they did against Houston the last two games without the guy who made the most three-pointers in NBA history being on the court, which I don't know if it's a testament to just, you know, the Warriors' execution offensively or how bad the Rockets were in season. I think it's a little bit of both. Right, the answer is yeah. And, and it's hard in a way to... Because the Warriors did so well against the Rockets offensively could like compare it at least to expectations to be like oh well they're gonna you know that they're gonna struggle with the Blazers but that Rockets team was was an aberration in so many ways you know for that end of the third end of game four and then for game five indeed I mean I, I don't think you'd read almost anything into that which that was one thing is Terry Stubbs did take many questions last night after the game but one thing I was curious to ask him is like can you how do you prepare for this series because all of the head-to-head games obviously Steph Curry played and they're such a different team without Curry do you just have to rely on those, you know, six games or whatever it was that they have played this season without Curry to scout them, or how much do you take from that that matchup? Yeah, because it's it's not only like you know, oh, it's a different guy in the skill set, but the Warriors' offense when Stephen Curry is on the floor and healthy is all through Stephen Curry, so it's a completely different reinvention. It's kind of like if if there was a, a band and they had to change their lead singer to someone who just didn't have the same, like, didn't have the same range. So they, they might sing the same songs, but they have to sing it totally differently. Yeah. Uh, I want to go back to the thought about if the Warriors end up playing green, primarily in the center. I'm curious to see how Portland would match up with that. We talked earlier about how they have, you know, other than Golden State, almost as many two-way wing players as anyone in the league. So I think we would probably see, you know, Terry Stotts goes small to counter it. Is he willing to go to Alfred Rubino at center with, you know, two wings and Colin and Lillard? Is he willing to go that small? In the regular season, he played Bombay a little bit at center to try to counter Draymond Green there. It's hard to see him probably playing in a playoff setting. One that would be possible, and I've actually talked about the idea of the Warriors doing this the other way, is having Plumlee at center but not having him guard Draymond at center. Have him put him on Harrison Barnes, probably, or somebody like that. So, you know, he's not going to be able to help out as much, but just to, just to do it in that way. And, you know, that, that has its limitations, especially because, you know, you're, you're going to have some weird things defensively, especially if you're if they're generating some switches. But I think that's a possibility as well. For sure. I mean, it's all cool to do that with cancer during their matchup in January or February, whatever that, whatever that was, that kind of set a bit of a template, I think, for 
know, keeps having more success or keeps giving that opportunity. And I, I think it is important because Will Plumley is not the shooter that some of the wings of Boise can bring in, or he is probably their third best passer and playmaker, so having to take him off the court would be a hit for them offensively. Again, it ties in with the idea of why you go small. Why teams do that is because, generally speaking, smaller players are more capable of doing doing things that help your offense, whether that be shooting, ball handling, making smart passes. Plumlee is better than their smalls in that way, so you're making a very different choice. Right, and it, so much of what they do offensively is predicated on his passing ability, not just out of the traps, you know, like in the Clippers series that was not repeatedly, but also whether it's, you know, dribble handoffs, making plays with the elbows, things like that, that uh, you wouldn't want to lose on the offense. I'm excited also to see what Alan Crabb does. He's going to be an important player for them just because while they have enough wings, they're going to need contributions from him, and because depending on how the Warriors divide the assignments, he's probably going to get an easier an easier guy on him than Lillard and McCollum, so can he take advantage of while it'll still be a tough matchup of whoever's on him? Right, another factor that like so many changed from the first two games of that series, in his case a little beyond that, I guess it wasn't until game five that Kraft really got going, but then with a big factor in game five and six and an interesting thing we saw from Terry Stotts late in the game, I uh, I don't think I got quite far enough on TomTom to see if you guys got into this, but the fact that Terry Stotts was going to finish with Aminu, who has been such a big part of the Blazers' season on the bench, along with Bo Hartlett, and with Kraft and Henderson in those two spots. Yeah, we, we didn't actually talk about that too much, but it is it is important to show his willingness to do things like that. But it's also strange because... They're gonna like if you think about it in terms of the president for the Warriors. Of course, the Clippers were at a very different place. Is that their? I think their bigger issue is going to be stopping the Warriors, not creating shots. Right. I, I would definitely agree with that too. But yeah, he, but no matter what, Crab is gonna gonna have that lingering thing. And also, one of the gargantuan questions in the series is that you, when Curry is out, Curry is is unavailable. Most teams you would think about, oh, they'll scale up the minutes for the other guys, and so then it'll create a smaller need for other players. But the Warriors are different because their guys, you know, like the Andre Guadalas and Sean Livingstons of the world, can't really expand their minutes too much. For Sean's reason, it's because of health, and for Andre, injuries and other things, and because theoretically for them, uh, unless they need it because they're behind in the series or something like that, you're going to need to save at least some of those guys for what would be a substantially harder Western Conference Finals, regardless of the opponent. So I think what becomes interesting there is, you know, Livingston is playing 30 minutes a night. The other 18 is playing guard, presumably Ian Clark. That's an opportunity for the Blazers, I think, that I think they're going to look at it as an opportunity because of the fact that they always will have either Lillard or McCollum out there. And uh, first off, you know, it's an easier defensive matchup for those two guys when Clark is out there. And then it makes it a little bit more difficult, I think, for the Warriors to get an elite individual defender on those two players, uh, particularly, you know, in terms of managing them If they're going to use Clay defending Lillard for stretches, which I fully expect them to do, because Sean isn't great in a lot of those kind of circumstances with a guy as, as good as Lillard, then I think the Warriors, considering Andre will be Andre Goodall will be the primary ball handler, I, that's a situation that I would advocate for them to use Brandon Rush a little bit more just because you're not going to be getting playmaking from Clark anyway, so you just have a guy who's a little bit bigger. But that doesn't mean Kerr's going to do that. Kerr will probably play Barbosa anyway. 
<laughs> right. It, it should not consistent with what he's done over the course of the year. Anything else you can think of on this series, or do you want to go to predictions? You know, the other interesting aspect here is the fact that Game 1 is being played at 12.30 on Sunday, and the Blazers finished their series at about 10.30 p.m. on a Friday night. So, you know, they've got 38 hours in between, and uh, Scott did mention that post-game and how it's going to be a pretty vanilla game plan in Game 1. So I think that that gives Golden State you know, an enormous edge in Game 1 of this series. And the series almost in some ways possible really start in game two. Then you've got three days off between that and game three to see further adjustments from both sides. So the series I feel like might not look very similar from game to game because of, you know, the, the ability to adapt and then also the potential of Curry coming back at some point. Yeah, and there's also a the timing beyond the obvious Curry implications because the game is being pushed back, you know, there's a possibility that he can play in game four the other kind of really lingering possibility with that for me is that we talked about how the Warriors they're some of their guys who can't really scale up their minutes and that's true and that's still going to be true but the gap between those games means the Warriors can push it a little bit harder in game two if they have to and the Blazers can't really because their guys are their guys and you know you can't really play Damian Lillard more than they've already been playing him so I think that's, you know, the Warriors have a much bigger advantage in Game 1 because of the timing for Portland, and the Warriors have had so much time off. But I think that could end up being a factor as well in Game 2. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, and even though guys like Livingston and Iguodala can't scale up their meds, I think you will see more from Clay Thompson and Draymond Green to try to minimize the time that either of those guys are on the court or even that just one of them is on the court by themselves. Yeah, I could see them both in the low 40s, maybe even the mid 40s for Game 2. Right, which is something I don't think we've seen since last year's finals. Right. And also, the Warriors, one of the weird things about this series now is while Curry is out, however long that is, they're actually a very talented big team, but, you know, they have a lot of guys that can play center, but they might not use them because their smalls are good and they, they might be a better counter for what Portland has. So you have this weird thing where they might be moving away from a theoretical strength because of another strength. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting for both teams because... You know, Davis and Plumley are certainly among Portland's eight best players. You know, it's a little hard to rank them, I guess, at some point. But, uh, you know, if if there's a lot of small ball in the series, I think we might not see very much of Ed Davis at all. And Plumley is going to produce from where we've seen the series. So I said I think that this series could go uh, a couple of different ways, but I think it's a pretty close to even series when Curry is out. And my prediction right now is that that's going to be for the first four games. So I'm thinking split, split. So that means, you know, that the Blazers, maybe the Blazers win game two, and then they split in, split in Portland. And then from there on, I think the Warriors win the two games with Curry. So that would mean Warriors and six. I think it tend to be higher on the Warriors without Curry than most everyone else. So I'm actually going to Golden State at five. I think that they will take three of the first four in this series. Minute. We'll serve at home, manage to take a game in Portland, and then finish it out back at home. Maybe maybe not even needing to bring back Curry. Well, and that ties in with something, because both you and Nate expect the Warriors to win the, both games at Oracle. And to me, if the Warriors are in that spot, if they're up 2 nothing, then I would tell him basically point blank, you're not playing in, you're not playing in Portland. Because then no matter what, you're, the worst case scenario is it's 2-2 with a game at, at Oracle, which you should be favored in, you know, should be meaningfully favored in. And even then, you could, the Warriors could win back-to-back games against Portland. So 
if if they do that, I think it's much less. I think they have a lot more. I guess moral high ground would be the kind of a way to think about it with Curry than if than if it's one one. Yeah, because it's a lot easier to tell him to be patient if the, if the Warriors are in a better position. Yeah, and of course, if they happen to go up three zero, then under no circumstances. Yeah. We we don't have to spend as much time on it, but let's do actually let's let's go with the the, the series that we already know before we get into the other one. I I just feel like Cleveland is a terrible matchup for Atlanta. No, they don't really have anybody anymore now that Damari Carroll's gone to, to guard LeBron. They have strengths. They're, they're a nice team, but I, I think that this is just a rough series for them. We're on the same page here, and the thing that stands out to me is now the, the Hawks losing on the last night of the season at Washington, a loss that seemed inexplicable at the time, now looms even larger because had they won that game, you know, you could be looking at a fairly tough matchup for Cleveland in the second round against, you know, maybe Miami, whatever, however exactly things would have fallen. And then Atlanta on the other side of the bracket where I would, at this point, favor them out of over whoever wins that Toronto-Indiana series. I think that they are probably now the second-best team in the East, at least with Kyle Lowry's elbow issues. But because of the fact that they slipped to fourth, instead they have to play Cleveland in the second round, and I, I don't like their chances of advancing for the same reasons that you don't. It's also concerning for Atlanta because while they really don't have anybody to guard LeBron, the possibilities with Kyrie are also challenging. I think personally that Atlanta's best defender for Kyrie is Kent Bazemore, but putting Kent Bazemore on Kyrie Irving opens up a, a, another defensive Pandora's box with just wherever you put their point guard then. Yeah, and who defends LeBron in that scenario? I guess Paul Millsap, and then who defends, who defends Kevin Love? Like, yeah, it's like putting your finger in the, uh, the dike and you plug one hole, and in this case, I think two others crop up. Yeah, and when you're sitting in the spot where your two best players are your four and your five, you can't realistically say, oh, we'll just go small and put another wing, because that absolutely unequivocally makes it worse. Yep. Yeah, so there's, there's, there do not seem to be a lot of easy answers for Mike and, you know, there's certainly a possibility that Al Horford and Millsap have good games and either make some closer than maybe they quote-unquote should be or that they, you know, that they can win at least one of the games in Atlanta. But to concoct a way that they win this series is very difficult for me. At the very least, they have to shoot like we've seen them shoot a couple of times against Boston when throughout the entire series as opposed to having the kind of nights where they generate good shots and they just don't go down like we saw a lot of last year's playoffs and then in the game that they lost so I have this as Cleveland in five I feel pretty comfortable in that but you know if it goes six it's no big deal right there with you also uh, so we have two game sevens that will be on Sunday and I'm really excited for both, not only because I've enjoyed these series substantially, they were the two series I was most anticipating going into the first round, but also because I think that both have a very real chance of the road team winning the Game 7. Yeah, I mean, I think the fact that both of those teams have already won on the road in this series, and, you know, Indiana probably should have won Game 5, just as Charlotte did, so this, their recent road win makes you feel good about their chances, along with the fact that the series of, you know, other than the first two games where the Heat really blitzed the Hornets, they have been competitive series, and in the Pacers' case, they've actually outscored the Raptors. Yeah, and so, okay, well, I guess we'll start here. If, which upset would you be less surprised by? So, Indiana over Toronto, because I, I think that in some ways, 
playing at home is a bit of a disadvantage for the Raptors until they can win a playoff series and get the cloud of here we go again out of the Air Canada And I believe I saw someone, might have been McGulver, tweeted that Toronto has never won a Game 7 home or road. Well, I mean, the only playoff series they ever won was a five-game series. So that's by right. definition, not. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, there's a lot of not great history what, and the other huge problem for them is that the, the structural disadvantages that they have against the Pacers haven't changed at all. You know, Paul George is still going to be defending DeMar DeRozan, and yeah, DeRozan can have a big night. He already had one with Paul George on him. But those, uh, George Hill's still going to be guarding Kyle Lowry. You know, th- those things haven't changed, and as far as I can tell, those Pacers are, are pretty healthy right now. And then the other aspect of it, biggest advantage that they have in the series was the minutes that the Pacers were playing without any of their three players. Even they have detailed at length, among others, during the series. And, you know, if Paul George extends his minutes and doesn't come out at the start of the fourth quarter like he did in game six last night, that takes away one of Toronto's biggest edge. Yeah, and it also takes away a potential counter of what they want to do with DeRozan, but and I think George Hill could potentially play more minutes in a Game 7-2, which is really bad news for them for that second unit as well, because presumably that could be, let's say, at the beginning of the second quarter. Right. I mean, it doesn't necessarily seem like Vogel would think that is as much of a priority as George setting up the but certainly possible. That will be one of the interesting things to watch. They also have, you know, it's not as quick a turnaround because they're playing Sunday night, but a fairly quick turnaround. So it's not like there's a lot of rest in between these games. There are a lot of different play, and part of what I'm so excited about this is there are a lot of different players that could have that, not a star-making game, but have a really notable one, with Valanchunas being one of them, but he's been very inconsistent offensively in this series. Obviously, his rebounding has been wonderful, but his, his offensive overall impact has vacillated pretty seriously. When you said star-making two nights, I just kind of naturally assumed you were going to Miles Turner. Miles Turner and Norman Powell. <laughs> yeah, Norman Powell, the breakout star of the uh, 2016 playoffs. I wanted to have, well, I mean... I, I can't say that I can't say that I love him more than Miles Turner because Miles Turner is my guy. But I could I could see Powell like if if Casey is really willing to give him the reins, he could really be an asset in this because he's arguably their best two way wing. So that of course excludes Kyle Lowry, and he's been a lot better than I expected him to be in transition. Which you know if they can actually get some stops would be very useful. And another way to get the crowd going is uh, keep them from being. You know, by intense and silent in this game, as he did at the end of Game Five, and then still tied up. Nate has been hammering home the point, and I, I believe he's right, with that Miles Turner struggles defensively guarding stretch fours, but that Toronto hasn't really pushed that as hard as they need to. Is your instinct that that's going to stay kind of like what it, what it's been for the rest of the series? I don't know. I mean, I think you know things went bad enough for Toronto in the second half of Game Six that everything has to be on the table in terms of adjustments. Yeah, and another team, Toronto, that stumbled onto having a surplus of wings, so they could do some really different stuff out there if they want to. We just haven't really seen them. Well, we saw it a little bit. They played Powell at the four some in game five. Right, I mean, that's the lineup that essentially won them the game. You know, that that grouping. So I think we could see anything, but I'm not as excited about you. I'm just terrified on behalf of. The Raptors and their fans. These Pacers lose this game. It's like, okay, we had it. You know, it was a nice run. We'll get them next year. If Toronto loses this series, I mean, I, I, just, I don't know how they go on. It would be tough, and that's part of the reason why I wanted them to trade DeMar DeRozan, is that I saw that as a possibility, and something that I floated on Twitter last night, you were 
you were in Portland doing more important things, was this question that I've been pondering for a couple months now of DeMar DeRozan is from Compton. He's an L.A. guy, went to USC, pretty young. For certain, for certain circumstances, I could conceive of an argument where he would rather take a 3-plus-1, meaning three years and a player option, in L.A. than a 4-plus-1 in Toronto. And certainly, I mean, you know, he seems to enjoy Toronto. He seems to love playing with Kyle Lowry. So those things are important along with the fact that, you know, in addition to the guaranteed year might not be quite as important for you because of for him because of his age, as you mentioned. It's not like uh, an Al Horford or Mike Conley where it seems unlikely that by the time of the next year free agency that they would be able to make a similar amount of money. But, you know, as you've often said, we don't know we we haven't gotten to see what he's really interested in since this is his first time that he has restricted free agency, and we'll find out. And if what happens tomorrow may influence that decision. And that has a whole bunch of ripple effects as well because Lowry's going to be a free agent after another year. And I'm not criticizing them for doing it, at least with Valanchunas, but the Raptors committing the money they did last summer to Corey Joseph, to Damari Carroll, to Valanchunas, and to Terrence Ross means that if DeRozan left, they would not have the flexibility to improve. So then you're, look, you're looking at an East team that, as, as much as I've been critical of DeRozan in moments, that is going to be probably worse than they were this year going into Kyle Lowry's free agency as an unrestricted free agent. Well, I think the good news is that other than Carroll, you know, who obviously has the health questions at this point, and we already thought the back end of his contract might not be very good just because of his age, you know, before that situation, those other guys are movable if you, if you want to move them into space. Yeah, but it's hard for the Raptors even to... They're one of those teams people talk about, yeah, they can do that, but cap space isn't probably as valuable to them as it is other teams. They did well getting getting guys, Joseph and Carroll, off of other teams last year, but both of those were unusual circumstances because their prior team was not willing to offer them the money that the Raptors did. And it's a lot easier to pull guys in that kind of a circumstance than when you have to do it. And, I mean, Biombo is another huge question mark with them. He's been fabulous, but they probably won't have the ability to retain him unless he's willing to take less. Yeah, he would have to take one year at the mid-level with some sort of a weak, weak promise that uh, we'll make it up to you and when we have your early third right in 2017. Of course it's early, and but you and I both love talking about the offseason, but depending on what Kevin Durant does, like it's possible that the East, the top end of the East doesn't get better next year. You know, Cleveland will probably be Cleveland unless they do something crazy. But it really does open up the East for another team. <laughs> and the question then becomes, which other team? Because you could probably name five or six, maybe even seven. And, you know, probably Washington even lost in that group despite not being in the playoffs this year. Yeah, and if, you know, depending on what Al Horford does, Toronto, or not Toronto, Atlanta could either be in that group or not be in that group. Yeah. Boston has a lot of upside you know, probably more, much more upside potential than downside potential for this summer. But, yeah, it's, it's, I guess it's, a, it's just an opportunity for someone who's willing to be aggressive and go out and make moves to potentially position themselves as the alternative to close the And speaking of teams that are aggressive and making moves, the last game is Miami versus Charlotte. Miami, of course, is they're in one of their downsides just because Chris Bosh is out, but... This has been a really, really fun series, and unfortunately, due to injury, Game 7 could look a little bit different just depending on what Nick Batum can do. Yeah, I mean, that's a, a shame because of the fact that I, I would like to see this entire series with Nick Batum healthy. 
even just making two threes while completely hobbled in game five, you know, the kind of impact he could have. It, it, it strikes me that, you know, the way to match up with Miami, and this goes back to, I guess, the theme of this podcast, is to have as many win players with size, probably, as possible. Because of the fact that you need to be able to count on this, you, you don't want to go with, uh, you know, they've gone with Jeremy Lynn, Tim Walker, and time in this series. But that presents an issue because if you have to have room to bend away, he's a post-up threat, Tim Johnson's a post-up threat. So that's one problem. But you also don't want to have too much size on the court because of the fact that Vincent Waldeng's mobility and shooting is an issue of power forward like we've seen with Minsky. Like, this is a series where the Hornets need to get as many wins as possible, and their very best one was healthy for maybe two games, maybe three, I don't know. Yeah, I, I agree with you, and that also is part of what leads me to think that Miami's going to win that game. I think so, too. I mean, first off, you know, in Game 7, you should probably default to the whole team as the most likely winner, no matter what. But and then there's also the question of how much Lynn Dankel continues to bother him, Cody Miller, he, all the minor injuries from the Harlan have left them significantly less than full strength as I can Yeah, I think that's definitely fair. So... As a basketball fan, we will exclude Spurs Thunder because I, I would be shocked if that wasn't number one with a bullet. Of these other three games, the Sunday games, which of them is most exciting to you? I, I mean, I think it probably is Indiana Toronto on Sunday, just because of the fact that there's so much riding on it. And the Charlotte Miami is, you know, I, again, not as optimistic about it being as exciting a game as it would be if Charlotte were fully healthy, but still a chance to be that we've got two really good finishes in a row. And, have a chance at a third there. So I think Oklahoma State Portland is probably lowest on the list, but still intriguing to me just to see how the Warriors without Steph Curry play against the team that is not preparing for vacation. If the stakes were different, I would actually probably have Warriors Portland number one just because I want to see what those two concepts of teams look like against each other. But it being a game seven pushes the other two games above it. And for me, Indiana, Indiana Toronto just has so much intrigue because of the the long-term impacts and it has a lot of players that I have a strong opinion on. And they're all going to be really fun, though. I think this is going to be an excellent week of basketball. Yeah, it's got the, it'll be a, a long day of basketball, but it'll be a very good one, I think. And the other aspect is going back to what I said earlier. We may just not learn that much in Warriors' plays in one because of the fact that the Blazers haven't had the chance to fully prepare for Golden State like they will be ready for the two games yeah, that's, that's a really great point. Uh, anything else you want to discuss? Do we, do we have any thoughts on the ball? I, I didn't think I'd catch you and Nate talking about that yet. But, uh, we did. If, you, if you want to talk about it, we can talk about it. I wrote about that last night very quickly after it happened. It was yeah, very good. During the first half of the Blazers-Clippers game, which is a bit of a blur to me, unfortunately, in the result. But, you know, I think, I mean, it, we all expected this, but uh, it's still... Yeah, I think you can't. They, the Lakers realistically could not have been done better than Walton in the overall big picture. I mean, he's not. He's such a uh, kind of an unproven entity as a head coach, just because he was Kerr's assistant and it was his system. And of course, the Warriors had such good talent. But if you are the Lakers, you are looking for a coach that will, at the worst, not be a hindrance to free agents and at best be somebody who can woo them. Walton certainly does that. Somebody who is can fit personality-wise with management above him 
that also can change because you know why Tibbs would have been a problem is that Tibbs would wanted more personnel control and he would have probably tried to fill any vacuum that was created by the theoretical Jim Genie transfer. So you have that possibility that Luke just won't do. You know, he'll, I'm sure he'd like to be a voice in the room like Kerr is, but he's not going to be the voice in the room and he's not going to agitate for it. So I think that, and a point that you brought up in your piece that I really liked is also that he should have some really good ideas for how to handle D'Angelo Russell, and I would extend that to if they got Ben Simmons, I think that Luke Walton would be a very good fit for a forward who has good court vision and can handle the ball. Right, as I mentioned in there, you know, Simmons' number one comparable in my shady college version is Draymond Green, so certainly similarities, very different motors and uh, personalities, but in terms of skill set, particularly offensively, a lot of similarities. Well, what's funny about that is I was actually alluding to Luke Walton. I wasn't alluding to Draymond, but Draymond's oh. certainly a fair fit. <laughs> yeah, well, Walton much the same way. Granted, Walton was a much lower prospect, but it's kind of the same idea. Yeah. yeah well, no, I, I think that I think that of those probably the most important thing is is what you mentioned about working with you know a potential management change because the one thing that was a question mark when they let Byron Scott go six days ago, which seems like many weeks ago now is, go, okay, well, what happens if Kupchak and Jim Bunn hire a coach, and then all of a sudden they're not in the picture and here, what happens then? Well, one guy who knew would work perfectly in that situation was Luke Walton. So I, I guess they had to have a pretty strong sense that he was probably going to take the job. Yeah, I, I'm guessing they did. And, he's, and of course, you, you have that thing with the Lakers that the people who are connected with that organization are often connected with it for a long time. And Walton... He checks so many boxes that even though he has these uncertain aspects to it, I think that that, that made him made him a clear cut choice for that position. Even though you know, even though you do have that uncertainty with things that people like you and I actually usually really value. I mean, the idea of like, will he be able to get guys to try on defense and things like that, which is such an important part of coaching. That's a little bit of a question. But when he does everything yeah. else so well, you're willing to look past it. Yeah. And it's not, and, and what's important with that also is that it's not a no for him. You know, like, it's not saying you have to overlook a negative. You have to overlook uncertainty, which is very different. Agreed, yeah. The funny thing about the timing was, so probably about 15 minutes before this was announced, uh, I was going to get dinner with Eric Gunderson of the Columbia and Malika Anders of the AP, and we were having a conversation about the possibility where I was saying, oh, yeah, if I'm bald, I'm going to, you know, I'm 36, I'm young, I've got plenty of time to get a coach. I'm going to ride this Warriors thing as long as it lasts. And almost immediately afterwards, it got announced. So were you surprised by the decision? I was a little bit surprised by the timing because what Luke had the ability, had the ability to be patient with, you know, so what I would, if I had been him, of course, he and I are wired very differently. I would have waited to see what happened in the lottery. Because of course right. that's a huge difference in terms of the value of, of what you're getting of what you're getting into, but if that's the job he wanted, then I understand it, and I can completely I can completely get why that would be the case. You know, it's where he played, he had success there as a player. It is a city I think he would be happy to live in long term, and those opportunities do not present themselves very often. If he did not take the Lakers job now, and he wanted it. You don't know that you have to assume it wouldn't come up next year because they're not the Kings, and so you have to just kind of you have to 
be ready to say, okay, even if, if that's the job I want, it might be 5, 10, 20 years. And I can understand why he didn't want to let that go. Well, my joke earlier was that it has come up routinely every two years for a long period of time here. But, yeah, you have to understand, well, you, you know, the timing is never going to be perfect, probably. So you just take the timing when, when it's there. And it was pretty clear from Ramona Shelburne's great piece today on ESPN.com that, uh, you know, this was where Walt wanted to be. And so if that's the case, then, then now it's not. Yeah, he's sure going to regret it when Durant signs with the Warriors in July. <laughs> But I'm excited also that you have these coaches in the Pacific Division, and of course we don't know who the Kings are going to do, but at least the three, you know, and Earl Watson, Luke Walton, and Steve Kirk, I'm reasonably confident that they all have relationships considering their time in the league. Yes, and as you pointed out, they're, uh, they're tied to the Pac-10. Yeah, we just need a, U, we need a UW guy Well, it, in the, to, to balance it out a little bit. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, George Irvin, I think, is the last UW head coach. It's been a while. Since, uh, I feel like we've had, had someone on the When Seattle gets a team again, Brandon Roy can be the head coach. I, I fully endorse it. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, it was a lot of fun as always. And uh, look forward to enjoying the second round in Game 7. Thanks again to Kevin Pelton for taking the time to come on. You can, of course, read him at ESPN Insider, where he puts out so much quality content. You can also follow him on Twitter, at KPelton. That's K-P-E-L-T-O-N. Apologies again for the audio quality. He was driving on his way back, and he's such a busy guy that I take advantage of any opportunity I can get to talk to him, and I think that the content there was, was great, so I, I stand by it as that. And, of course, I apologize that the audio quality isn't what I, what I hope it to be, but there's nothing that can be done about that in this circumstance, especially considering how soon the games are starting. And talking a little bit with somebody who, who writes for ESPN Insider is a reasonable enough segue into a really cool thing that I'm a part of now, which is The Athletic. So The Athletic is a sports startup that began in Chicago, and it uses a subscription-based model. And the reason that I'm approaching that and think it's a great idea is because I think it is the future of sports writing. It is a more reliable revenue-based model, and I think that the reader experience is personally better than a more ad-based system, which can be obtrusive both on the mobile platform and on desktop, which is mostly how I do my reading, especially long-form and The Athletic has done well in Chicago with that, and I am heading up the Golden State Warriors branch of what hopefully will be an overall San Francisco Bay Area version of The Athletic. We're starting with the Warriors because there isn't really a better time to strike than this playoff run for what was already a historic regular season team. We'll see what happens with Steph Curry's injury, but you know it's, it, it will definitely be interesting no matter what. And I'm excited to bring that to you. I've been energized by the opportunity. Part of what I'm doing is making sure that people who are committing money to this, and I'm hoping it's going to be beyond Warriors fans, just people who are looking for good sports writing that happens to be about the Golden State Warriors or be focused on them, is something that is worthy of your money and of your time. I've always said, and I, this was in my Reddit AMA, which was over the week, that one of the goals in everything that I do, except for Twitter, is to make sure that it is worth the reader's time, because I really do value that. And for me, making it worth their money and their time is another step up. And it, it's a meaningful step in that way because there are so many other things, whether it be bills or entertainment or anything else that are, are worthy of people's time. But I'm really proud of what we're building there and the response has been great so far. So you can go to theathletic.com 
slash SF Bay is the Bay Area part, or you can just go to theathletic.com. It's a wonderful venture. I'm thrilled with the people that I'm working with. I've only been there, you know, very short period of time. The site launched this week, but it's been fantastic so far. And that will be for those of you, some people have expressed concern about this. It will go on top of my other things. I will still be writing for Real GM. I will still be recording for Real GM. I will still be writing for the Sporting News. And of course, I will do Dunked On as, as long as Nate Duncan will have me. So I love doing all of those things. This is just a supplement to all that and hopefully a big part of it in the long term. And I'm very optimistic about that. So if you have any feedback, ideally on the podcast, but really on anything, you can hit me up on Twitter at Danny LaRue, D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X. You can also email me, uh, NBA at gmail.com is the email I use for that sort of thing. I read everything. I respond to as much as I can. Sometimes I respond really late. I actually owe people a couple of those now, but that's the nature of this. But my promise to you is that I will read everything if you take the time to send it, because I think really that's what's most important. And it's a lot of fun doing this, doing everything. It's amazing to really have made something, you know, that's really a life out of this is something that I honestly never expected. I, when I got into this seven years ago and started writing even before that, just as a stress release from law school, I referred to it for my, to my friends for years as the greatest hobby in the world. And to be able to convert the greatest hobby into the world into an actual job is beyond my wildest dream. So I appreciate all of you helping make that possible. Of course, subscribing to The Athletic is another way to keep doing that. But you can do whatever you're doing. And re- writing a review, rating the podcast, or dunked on or anything else, and even just word of mouth. Those are things that are very important for how this is going. And also, for whatever you listen to, as long, if you want it to keep going, downloading every episode, whether or not you listen to it, is something that is important because that goes into our ratings. Subscribers doesn't really, I think, because it's difficult to calibrate right now, but downloads do. So do that with, if it's this podcast, if it's anything else, because I want everybody to succeed. And thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Let the celebration begin. Come to Cabela's 4th of July sale and gear up for Independence Day. Get 50% off Cabela's American Flag Chairs 2-Pack and 50% off a Caravan 10-foot by 10-foot shelter. Plus, get 40% off an Abu Garcia Cardinal Sapphire Spinning Combo and 10% off all in-stock canoes and kayaks. Don't miss Cabela's 4th of July sale in-store and online at cabelas.com. Run to Old Navy for revolutionary prices on summer's most stylish shorts. Tomorrow only, they're all 50% off for the whole family. All your favorite shorts, denim, linen, all of them. All shorts are 50% off tomorrow only. Run to Old Navy. Valid 630 excludes active. Run to Old Navy for revolutionary prices on summer's most stylish shorts. Tomorrow only, they're all 50% off for the whole family. All your favorite shorts, denim, linen, all of them. All shorts are 50% off tomorrow only. Run to Old Navy. Valid 630 excludes active.